Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. We're jumping out of our studies in the gospel according to Luke. We're going to go over to Matthew as we focus on caring for the least of these. And of course, that phrase is so familiar to us because of Jesus using it in this passage. Matthew chapter 25, we'll be looking at verses 31 through 46. Please give your attention to God's word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you in sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. The long-standing human tradition of shirking responsibility began at the beginning, just outside the Garden of Eden, when after Cain had killed his brother Abel, God confronted him and asked him, where is your brother Abel? And Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Why, yes, Cain, you were your brother's keeper and you failed miserably at the job. One of the first internet memes that I ever remember seeing was a picture of a dead possum lying in the middle of the road. And in the rest of the picture, what you saw was the freshly painted double yellow line going down the middle of the road over the dead possum and then on down the road. And the caption at the bottom of the meme was, not my job. The guy was obviously, I hate to explain a joke, but the guy who was supposed to paint the yellow line on the road did not see the dead possum as part of his responsibility. It's not his job, he said. This is Orphan Sunday. And so we're asking the question, whose job is it? 
to care for the orphans in our midst and the orphans around us. I could have a pretty good argument probably with a lot of you about whatever government role or lack of government role there is in caring for orphans, but that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. I just want to focus on who has the primary responsibility of caring for orphans, and that's the Church of Jesus Christ. We are the ones who are called to care for the widow and the orphan. How many times is that phrase repeated in Scripture? That that is primary to our job description, to care for the widow and the orphan. In Matthew 25, we have a picture of the last great day of judgment. The day of judgment. Yes, there is a final day coming. History is linear. History is progressive. History is moving towards one final day of judgment. And when we stand before the throne of judgment, Jesus Christ will be the one seated on that throne as the judge over all people. This is a message that our world needs to hear. Is that everyone, all nations, every single individual will one day stand before Jesus Christ as their ultimate judge. This is the same Jesus who was born and placed in a manger. The same Jesus who didn't have a place to lay his head while he was here in his earthly ministry. The same Jesus who was mocked and beaten and crucified. It will be the risen Jesus Christ who will return and be seated on that glorious throne. At the name of, of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when they cannot deny it, when he's seated on the throne as the king and the judge. I'm reminded when I was a brand new believer, I went to one of my first Christian concerts, Christian music concerts, and the singer Dana Key stood at the mic and in between songs, he said something to me that stuck with me ever since. He said, you know what? When Jesus came the first time, he had to stand before Pilate, but when he comes back again, Pilate will stand before him. It's a comforting thought in light of all the turmoil of the nations today. Notice in this passage that Jesus compares his role as the judge of all mankind to that of a shepherd. He says there's going to be a great division among mankind of all people who have ever lived, whoever will live. There's going to be one great division between the two and he compared it to a shepherd separating sheep from goats. Notice he didn't say that he's going on that great day, he's not going to separate all people into good sheep and bad sheep. He says he's going to separate all people into sheep and goats. What he's referring to is that there is going to be a basic difference in the nature of all people on that day. When a shepherd, back in the days of Jesus, when a shepherd worked out in the fields, he often would combine the goats and the sheep during the day to do their feeding out in the, in the fields. But at night, he would separate them so that the sheep and the goats could rest. And in order for the sheep and the goats to rest, he had to separate them because the goats would, would uh, provoke the sheep. They'd, they'd bother the sheep. They would make life difficult for the sheep during the night. So he would separate the sheep from the goats at night. And you know how he separated them? He called the sheep. 
Because sheep would come when they were called. They were trained to come when they were called. Goats couldn't be trained to come when they were called. And so he would call the sheep and the sheep would come and that's the way he would separate them from the goats. As Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so here's where that separation takes at the end of all history. On that great day, all the distinctions among men, and we talk a lot these days about all the different distinctions among people, male, female, white, black, different nationalities. We talk about all the different identities, all the differences among people. But on that day, there's only going to be one difference, the difference between the sheep and the goats. Those who have the nature of sheep and those who have the nature of goats. Every other distinction among people will be rendered meaningless on that day. Those who are born again and by God's grace have given, been given a new heart, who have been given eternal life as a gift, and those who have not received that gift by faith. That'll be the separation, the sheep and the goats. You see, it's important to understand that because some people read this text and they say, well, this is merely about the social gospel, the idea that Jesus came to preach the good news and their good news is the idea that we are to take care of one another. That's what the gospel is to some people. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. This passage is not about how you become saved. We don't go out and care for people so that God will save us. We don't go out and care for people so that God will love us. We go out and care for people because God loves us. We go out and care for people because he has saved us. This passage is about the effect of God's saving work, not the cause of saving work, God's saving work. In verse 34, it says, the sheep are those who are blessed by Jesus' Father. They're the ones who are the object of God's sovereign grace of his favor. The ones whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world, and it says, whose inheritance was prepared for them since the foundation of the world, since creation. Sheep serve others because of what God has done for them by his sovereign grace. That's what this passage is about. And so let's dig a little bit into this distinction between the nature, this God-given, gifted nature that the sheep have compared to the nature of the goats. What Jesus is teaching is that the sheep care for the needy, first of all, because they love Jesus Christ. The sheep care for the needy around them because they love Jesus Christ. On that day, the genuineness of a person's faith is going to be tested by this question. How did you respond when you saw Jesus Christ in need? How did you respond when you saw Jesus hungry and thirsty? How did you respond when you saw him as a stranger and did you take him in? How did you respond when you saw him needing clothes? Did you give him clothes? Did you visit him when he was sick or when he was in prison? Now, almost everyone on that day that stands before him will not have seen him during his earthly ministry, during his public life here on earth. And so, like them, most of us would say, well, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, Lord? When did we see you a stranger? When did we see you needing clothes? When did we see you sick or in prison? 
you know, I can imagine any of us, even, even somebody who wouldn't consider themselves a believer of Jesus Christ, would say, wow, if I saw Jesus Christ in those kinds of needs, I would do whatever I could do to help him. I would do it. Well, Jesus then says something that is deeply provocative, deeply revealing of what it means to truly love Jesus Christ. He says in verse 40, And the king will answer them on that day, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. To understand what Jesus is saying here, you have to put it in light of the broader teaching of the New Testament particularly. This mysterious union that believers have with Jesus Christ. One of the things that the Apostle Paul teaches over and over and over again is that when you put your faith in Christ, when you're born again and you put your faith in Christ, you become one with Christ. You are in Christ. That's a, one of Paul's favorite, matter of fact, it is his favorite phrase in all of his writings in the New Testament. We are in Christ when we believe in Christ. We are one with him. There's a, a deep identity and union with him that is spiritual. In John chapter 15, Jesus talked about it in Eastern. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about this union with Christ when he calls Christ the head and we are the body. Paul himself says about his own life, he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now that sounds, in many ways, it's hard for us to understand. What does that mean in a practical sense? It's very abstract. What does it mean that I am in Christ, that Christ is in me, that I have this deep union with Christ? What does it mean? Well, one, when it comes to serving those in need, I think a very simple way to look at it, if I were to take my phone and place it in my Bible, I can honestly say that anything I do to my phone, I also do to the Bible. Or anything I do to the Bible, I also do to the phone. The Bible says that we have been crucified with Christ. If we're in Christ, then we are crucified with Christ. The Bible says we are raised with Christ. We're in Christ. Everything that's happened to Christ happens to us. If I am persecuted, if I suffer, if I am attacked, then Christ is attacked. If I'm honored, Christ is honored. If somebody ministers to me, then that person ministers to Christ. That's all that he's saying. Because we are one with Christ. Remember in Paul's conversion, as recorded in Acts chapter 9, when the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, appeared to him in his glorious vision on the road to Damascus, the first thing that Jesus said to him was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was destroying the church, according to Luke in the book, book of Acts. He was persecuting, destroying the church. But Jesus, when he confronts him about his sin, he says, why are you persecuting me? As Paul attacked the church, he was attacking Christ. That's what Paul is getting at in that mysterious statement he makes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, when he says, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. He's talking about his suffering on behalf for the sake of, for the good of the church in Colossae. And so he talks about how he has suffered for the sake of the church. He says, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. That's an amazing statement. Now, Christ's suffering 
that brought about atonement for sin was unique. Only Christ could suffer that way because only Christ was the Son of God and a perfect man. Only Christ suffering on the cross could pay for sin. But what Paul is saying is anytime he as Christ's servant, or any of us who are one with Christ, who are in Christ, anytime we suffer, we are filling up what is still lacking in what Christ is called to suffer because he suffers with us. In order for the kingdom to come, the church must suffer. And when the church suffers, Christ suffers with us. We are in him. You know, one thing that's helped me to understand, this is when I got married. Because the Bible says that when a man and a woman come together in a lifelong covenant of marriage, they become one flesh. And that is probably one of the best earthly experiences I understand what it means to be one. Because you cannot mistreat my wife and still be in a good relationship with me. Because we're one. And if you're kind to my wife, you're kind to me. Because we're one. And so Jesus here is focusing on the kindness part of that equation. When we are kind to those in need, we are kind to him, particularly those who are his brothers, those who are part of the church. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 to 42, Jesus said, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. And then remember the passage we read just a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 9, verses 47 and 48, where it says, Jesus took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. You see, the least of these Jesus brothers are those who are within the church, who are one with Christ, but are in great need in the in the terms of this world. The weakest, neediest, most vulnerable people in the church are the ones that he's talking about. When you cared for these ones, you cared for me. When you gave them a cup of cold water, you gave a cup of cold water to me. And you will be rewarded on the great judgment day for your faithfulness and service to the weakest, the neediest, and the most vulnerable. You see, the focus here is on the church. Jesus is not talking about how we love people outside the church. He does that elsewhere. He tells us not only love people outside the church, but our neighbors, our co-workers, the people we interact with in the marketplace. He's not, you know, he tells us to love those people. He tells us to love even our enemies. But that's not the subject of this passage. The subject of this passage is how do you love his own? How do you love the weak and vulnerable and needy people within the church family? Widows, single mothers, abused wives, abused children, Disabled people, elderly people, how well do you care for them? We're talking about orphan care this Sunday. I can't imagine a more loving thing to do. We talk about loving the children, the needy children, the poor children, the disabled children, the abused children within the church walls. But what a great thing to bring a child who's outside the church into a Christian family, which means they bring them into the covenant community and they become one of us. And so orphan care in a very real sense because it reflects what God did for us. We were outside the church and he adopted us by his grace into the church family. We are to love as we have been loved. And so orphan care and adoption is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. 
So sheep, if you have the nature of a sheep that Jesus is talking about here, then you're going to love the needy. You're going to love the poor. You're going to love the vulnerable because you love Jesus Christ. You're one with him. Second reason that's given here is that the sheep care for the needy because that's what sheep do. That's what you're wired to do now. You weren't born with that nature. You were born with a nature that is all about me, all about my kingdom, my agenda, what I want, grasping what I want. But you've been born again. And so you have a new nature. And the Bible talks about that from beginning to end. We are given the gift of faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved by faith, and the faith that we exercise towards Christ, the trust that we have for Christ that, that saves us, is a gift from God. But the nature of that faith, what that faith does, is it transforms us, and it begins to produce fruit. The fruit that Paul lists in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If the faith is real, it's what it produces is these kinds of fruit, particularly the kind of fruit that cares for the needy around us. Just think about what God expected of his Old Testament church, the nation of Israel. He gave them the Old Testament law. And in the law, he teaches that when they harvested their fields, when the harvest time came and all the food that they were going to have to live off all year long was to be taken in, he told them, do not harvest the corners of your fields, but leave them for the poor and the needy. On the, in the seventh year, no one was to harvest any of their fields. It was a Sabbath year. They were not to harvest any part of the fields because it was to be left for the poor and the needy. And one of the classic passages on what the nature was to be of the Old Testament church is to go to Deuteronomy chapter 15, beginning in verse 7. Listen to what it says. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Verse, nine, uh, verse 10, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For... For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. You see, we were born with closed fists. We were born grasping what we can get for ourselves because we were selfish and self-centered. But the new nature, when God changed us from the nature of a goat to the nature of a sheep, he gave us a new nature with open hands that finds our joy and satisfaction in being used of God to meet the needs of others. That's the nature of a sheep. The prophets condemned Israel when they would oppress the poor. The prophet Isaiah in particular said that the worship that Israel offered to God was an abomination to God when they were oppressing the poor. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, the prophet Micah says to the people, he has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Well, what about Jesus in the early church? Well, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he preached from that great passage at the beginning of Isaiah 61, which is the basis of our church's vision, 
where he lays out the mission statement of his ministry. And it begins with these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then he talks about the impact of preaching the good news, the gospel to the poor, is that the, those who are broken are bound up. Those who are broken are healed. Those who are captives are set free. Think about the miracles that Jesus did. We'd say that the miracles that Jesus came, when he came, the miracles that he did were authentic, authentic, authentic What's the word I'm looking for here? They're, they authorized it. Um, I'm really stumbling over this word. What is it? Authenticated. That's the word I'm looking for. They authenticated his ministry. And they did that by showing that he had the power and authority over creation, over the human body. He had, the, he had the authority over all things. But think about the kind of miracles he did. I mean, he could have turned the sky purple to show that he's powerful and had authority. He could have turned the Sea of Galilee into wine if he just wanted to show that he had power and authority. Instead, what he did is he healed the lame and the blind and the deaf because that's what the gospel is about, caring for those who are needy, both spiritually and physically. What about the early church? Very familiar passage in Acts chapter 4, which describes the life of the early church in the days shortly after the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church and empowered the church to take the gospel to the nations. Listen to this short description of how these early Christians lived with one another, beginning in chapter 4 of Acts, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Everybody brought their properties, their monies, they pulled their resources and then distributed to anybody as they had need. Now, we kind of, especially those of us who are right-wing evangelical Christians, we always want to jump to say, now, this isn't saying that we should be communists. <laughs> this isn't saying that we shouldn't own private property. And that's true. That's not what this passage is about. These people willingly did this because of their love for Christ and their love for each other. They willingly sacrificed their belongings and their properties so that... Here was the goal. No, there were no needy persons in their midst. That should always be the testimony of the church of Jesus Christ. If the gospel is true, then within the boundaries of the church of Jesus Christ, there should never be a needy person if we're doing what we've been called to do. You know, in the early 300s AD, Constantine became emperor of the Roman Empire. And he made, shockingly, he made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. About uh, a little while later, Julian the Apostate, that he was called, Julian the Apostate became the emperor of the Roman Empire. And he tried to undo everything that Constantine had done for the church and for Christianity. And he tried to reestablish the ancient Roman myths and, and the ancient Roman 
worship as, as the, the main state of the, the state church of Rome, so to speak. But it failed. He wasn't able to revert things back to the way they were before. And he, gave, he wrote a, a treatise on why he failed and listen to this one part of it. He said, one of the reasons that he failed, he says, we ought to be ashamed. Not a beggar is, a fa- is, fa- is to be found among the Christians. And these Christians feed not only their own people, but ours as well, whereas our people receive no assistance whatever from us. You know, it's interesting, speaking of children, it was acceptable in Roman culture, if you had an unwanted child, it was acceptable to just leave them in the garbage piles and abandon them. But it was the Christians who took the lead in going to the garbage piles to rescue those children and take them into their homes and raise them as their own children. The rest of the New Testament, after the book of Acts, after the history of the New Testament church, talks about what Jesus established the church to be. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. James writes in chapter 1, verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James is saying that the church of Jesus Christ should always have two testimonies before the world, should display the gospel before the world in two particular ways, that we care for the needy, the widow and the orphan, and we pursue holiness. We seek to do the will of Christ as our Lord in in this world. Caring for the widow and the orphan, pursuing holiness. That's what testifies that the church is truly the church of Jesus Christ. James says over in chapter 2, He says this about our profession of faith. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also is faith by itself. If it does not have works, it's dead. If you claim to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you claim to be saved, but you have no evidence of that, either through caring for the needy or pursuing holiness, then your faith is a false faith. It's dead. It's worthless. And then 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 20. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You know what's interesting is to take this passage from Matthew 25 that talks about the judgment day and compare it to what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he says that you will know who's a true believer by these evidences of God's grace at work in their life. And he uses the phrase that we're familiar with, that by by their fruit you shall know them. By their fruit you shall know them. Did you ever notice the very next thing that it says in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus says, on that day, speaking of this judgment day in Matthew 25, on that day many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, Look at all that we've done for you. 
We've prophesied in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. We've done miracles in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, because casting out demons, doing miracles, prophesying, those are good things, but they're not the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. It's caring for others. The evidence that you're a sheep is not in doing great things in ministry. The evidence of being sheep is that you have the heart of a sheep, the nature of a sheep that cares for the needy around you, particularly, especially those who are part of the church. John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So, let me just close by saying this. Do you love Christ? Do you really love Christ? Do you remember when Christ asked Peter that after the resurrection? Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, I really love you. Just like we would say on a Sunday morning, we love you, Lord. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. If you really love me, feed my sheep. Take care of my people. Especially the vulnerable, especially the weak, especially the needy. Especially the orphans and the widows. Especially the unborn children. The most vulnerable. Love them well. Because we are a brother's keeper. It is our job. You know, the last few years, the leadership here at Oakwood has been having a lot of conversation about how we can strengthen the outreach ministry of this church. Since the beginning, this church has been mostly known for its ministry of the word, for strong expository biblical preaching and, and good, solid biblical doctrinal teaching. That's been the reputation, but we haven't been known so much for our good works, our deeds. But the church is always to be known by both word and deeds. And we want to strengthen our outreach. And as we look around at the community around us, there's a lot of ministries that we could get involved with in terms of doing good deeds and good works. But we want to start with the one that reaches out to the least of these. The most vulnerable. The most needy. And I tell you, I don't know of anybody who is more least in the eyes of this world than orphans, unwanted children, abandoned children and unborn children. Now I recognize that probably not a lot of us are gonna be called to adopt, hopefully more of us will be called to foster. But my prayer is that all of us will be committed to the ministry of caring for orphans. And the, this concept that Pastor Owen mentioned about wraparound teams, wraparound communities, Support groups. I pray that Oakwood Presbyterian Church would be known as a church that not only loves unborn children and orphans and unwanted children, but that we are willing not only for those, some of us to adopt and, and give foster care, but all of us are willing to support the families who do. That we would have such a strong support network for those who are willing to bring a child into their home and care for them. That's what our dream is is that Oakwood would be known for that as well as preaching the true gospel and upholding the full authority of Scripture. Let me pray. Father, when we look at the requirements, the job description 
of being disciples of Jesus Christ, we get overwhelmed because we know how far short we fall. And so, Lord, I don't want to close without pointing to the core of the gospel, that we are not saved because of our worthiness. We're not saved because of our good deeds. We are saved because of your grace and your grace alone. You looked at us when we were closed-fisted. You looked at us when we were selfish and self-centered, when we were, there was nothing that was beautiful in your sight, nothing that was desirable, and yet you loved us, and you chose us, and you gave us that gift of faith by which we are saved. And now that we are saved, we have this nature that needs to grow, that needs to be strengthened, that needs to be intensified. Lord, give us greater faith. Give us a greater compassion for those in need. And Lord, I pray that so many hurting and broken and abandoned children, orphans, unborn children, Lord, I pray, Lord, that many would be ministered to through this church and other like-minded churches as we seek to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Teach us to love as we have been loved by you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.